to do? Making a video. Making a video. It's a tough thing, ladies and gentlemen, to rank some of your favorite movies. I've had people ask me on many occasions, since I'm such a film freak, Hey Larry, what's your favorite movie? And I'm always stumped by it. Originally, we were going to do a list of our top 20 films of the 80s, and I could not do it. So Lee and Larry have been ranking our top 25 favorite horror films from the 80s, as well as reviewing three picks each from that wonderful decade. So welcome to part two of the 80s film examination. Uh, welcome back to Mr. Lee Beckman. As usual, there will be spoilers, there will be coarse language, and there will be fun times had. Please send me feedback at rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. And as always, thank you so much for listening to Rank and Review. geometric rate. By all accounts, it's at least a thousand times its original mass. Nobody believes me about what happened tonight. What did happen? I want that organism alive. I think you pissed it off. of the top 25 favorite horror movies of the 80s. My original format, I sort of tried to cheat extra titles in by making ties. And I actually tied, the in my original form of the list, The Fly and The Blob. Because mm. I think that they are kind of interesting in that they're both remakes. They both sort of put on full display amazing prosthetic effects that sort of were at the peak of their abilities in the 80s before they slowly got jettisoned in the 90s in favor of computer animated effects mm -hmm. and in that in both of those cases not only did they make a remake that was far better than the original but mm -hmm. that I think kind of obliterated the original sort of took a good concept and made a much better entertainment out of it mm -hmm. I love the combination especially in the 80s of Frank Darabont and Chuck Russell mm. Most especially Nightmare on Elm Street 3 mm -hmm. and this one. 
to a lesser extent the fly too it has its problems but it's mm. also solid genre entry mm. and at the times you know they weren't having their pick of their projects these were hired gigs for them mm -hmm. they were doing their best to this make this is young Darabont this yeah. is even younger Chuck Russell yeah they were hired gigs trying to make the best movie they can with the tools that are presented for them mm -hmm. and uh, the blob I think is the best of their collaboration to a very substantial degree. Mm -hmm. I love Nightmare 3 though. I think mm -hmm. that's you know arguably the best of the series. Mm -hmm. But it's a wonderful thing in that it's a fitting sort of B-movie tribute that knows its source material and it knows you know mm -hmm. the kind of movie it is. Mm -hmm. On top of that it is consistently thrilling mm -hmm. and in several times subverts my expectations like mm -hmm. I was jaw-dropping shocked by something that happened in the movie twice for sure maybe more if I if I think about it but for sure twice in this movie and uh, I think it's one of the most memorable pieces of science fiction horror entertainments of the decade mm -hmm. and I don't think it's one that gets mentioned much I said that same thing with the fly mm -hmm. people talk about the shining obviously people talk about the thing mm -hmm. people don't talk about this blob remake enough and I think it's the shit. Yeah. It's, but it's, uh, I'm willing to hear a second opinion. So where do you land on the blog? Well, as I was rewatching it, I was sort of you know, sadly lamenting that big budget studios don't, don't make movies like this anymore. Nope. Um, you know, it's sort of a, a quick wild ride that, yes, it offers a couple of twists and turns that you don't see coming, which elevates it so much more than the original. But, I mean... This is like one of two movies out of the the six that we're going to talk about, or have been talking about, where it's the Shining and the Thing. I think are really adult horror. There's some really mature themes, things going on with them. Even the Fly. This is the, a popcorn movie. Where yeah, the Blob just wants to, to entertain you and and thrill you and scare you. Like it's just it's there's no deep subcontext to this movie. This movie is a lot of fun. It's not deep. It doesn't have no. to be deep. No, it doesn't have to. But uh, it, it, in knowing what it is, and mm -hmm. in not just embracing the genre, but being made and being written by two people who don't dislike, but love the genre, yeah. you feel that. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a psycho kill in the movie, okay? Mm -hmm. We get set up with this main character. Oh, you were talking about this early, okay. Well, it's, it happens early in the movie. All right. But uh, he's sort of positioned as our heroic romantic lead. because the Steve McQueen was the sort of uh, high school jock good good old boy in the, in the original he's got a best buddy who's sort of comic relief but also kind of a dick yeah he uh, a date raping know, dick yeah he, he yeah he tries to date rape Eric Alaniac uh, uh, Eric Alaniac yeah, I think Eric Alaniac you said yeah. it I think, I think you said it correctly sorry um, Mr. Anyway. Alaniac uh, so, but he's set up like if this was yeah. not the blob, if this was another horror movie or some sort of romantic comedy, mm -hmm. this guy he's got this real Tom Cruise look to him, yeah, and uh, clean cut, earnest. He gets completely obliterated on the football field, but manages yeah. to turn that into the win by using that as they an opportunity spend to ask a good amount of time where you settle into the fact that this is you think this is going to be your lead character, yeah. one of your protagonists, and he's not <laughs> by the twenty-five minute mark. He is digested. He has one of the worst deaths of the movie. This yep. thing that falls from space, I guess if we pay a little bit of service to the plot, uh, it looks like it's uh, a meteorite falls to Earth. This old bum guy who's just collecting cans and lives out in the woods sees yep. it first, and this goo crawls onto his hand, and uh, it slowly gets bigger as it slowly consumes his hand. Yeah. 
uh, our heroes end up going to the hospital for different reasons, and uh, yes, our romantic lead goes to call the police to inform them that this old man has died. Yeah, and he is enveloped by the blob. Yeah, and Shawnee yeah. Smith, who as Jean it turns Fair out, Shawnee Smith, yeah, yeah, as it turns out, is going to be our main character. Yeah. we just didn't realize it until this moment. Yeah, walks in the room to check on Paul. And sees him slowly being dissolved by this acidic alien-looking yeah. life form, yeah. and she grabs him by the hand to pull him free, yeah. and manages only to save the top half of his arm. Yeah, the rest of him is consumed. He is and so as the first act of the yeah. blob. <laughs> so that's already the first twenty minutes. But you go, yay! I mean, at this point, you are introduced to totally eighties Kevin Dillon. <laughs> Yeah, he's walk, rocking a full Swayze mullet there. I really appreciate that. In the eighties, that would have been at least accepted, and by the nineties, it's sheer parody. It's a very eighties moment, and the thing is a very eighties horror movie. It's uh, also this kind of weird badass outcast character guy yeah. that's really popular in the eighties, but sort of exists even to this day in to certain degrees. Yeah. Who doesn't just live above the law, but lives yeah. in some sort of vague contempt yeah. of any kind of organization <laughs> yeah. of any ways. Like he's just born a rebel. Yeah. He's not a bad guy, but he fucking hates anyone telling him what to do. Right? He's brooding, but not unhappy. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, it's weird. Yeah. But uh, it's a very '80s performance. Yeah, and the it's Kevin a performance Dillon, that can only exist in the '80s. Kevin Dillon, who has had some career highlights, he was really good as Bunny in Platoon, and yeah. has had some success in Entourage. I've always kind of thought of the le- as the lesser Dillon. <laughs> that that may seem hurtful, but he does the job here, and his hair is the one loudly distracting '80s uh, aspect of this movie. For the most part, it's aged, I think, really, really well. But that that man mullet, it's just, wow. Somewhere, Kevin Dillon is crying because of this, you <laughs> yeah. know that? He's crying, Larry. He's crying. You've hurt Kevin Dillon's. The lesser Dillon? Come you, on, man. You don't agree? You don't think that? Oh, I totally agree. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yes. I just... Oh, Larry. Like, you went there. I said with concession. You yeah. know, he's been fine in other things, but it's like, if you can't get Matt Dillon, I guess you settle for Kevin Dillon. <laughs> wow, <laughs> man. Just right in the feelings. <laughs> Just oof. Ooh. <laughs> you know, every family has their Chris Penn or their Stephen Baldwin. Rest in peace. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. Stephen found God, so yeah. <laughs> Wait, anyway, yeah. uh, that's peripheral to all of this. Yeah, we, um, we his performance track. is fine. His character is a walking, talking cliche. Yes. And it's funny because at the time this is being presented, I think he was being sort of straight badass. Yeah. And now I sort of see him more as like the Kurt Russell character from uh, Big Trouble in Little China. <laughs> yes. It's just this guy who's painfully unself-aware <laughs> yeah. who thinks he's awesome. Yeah. And everybody else is like rolling their eyes <laughs> and just like, oh Christ, this guy again. <laughs> but at least this character is competent. Jack Burton is one of the most incompetent heroes yeah. And ever. he's consistent to yeah. a point. Oh, yeah. Right? Like, uh, he, he'll begrudgingly do the right thing. Yeah. And uh, even when he's being an asshole, he's kind of right. Yeah. When he says, we need to abandon this town, this is a bad place to be, yeah. as much as it's not a heroic choice to make... It's the right choice. It, it is very much <laughs> the right choice to make. Yeah. Um, basically, Kevin Dillon and Shawnee Smith are the only two people who have really... Uh, a big understanding of what's happening in this town. Yeah. And by the time they get organized and have enough people convinced that they 
you know, something bad is happening. Mm -hmm. A good portion of this town that we were introduced to in the first very charming half an hour of the movie Mm -hmm. has been consumed by this blob in very memorable ways. Oh, Lord. Where do we begin? (laughs) I think the sink sink kill is probably one of the best 100 kills of all time. Arguably one of the best kills of the 80s. Yeah. (laughs) It's just brutal. (laughs) Some poor dude who's ending his day after a long shift working in a and you know his life sucks because he's been working in that kitchen for probably at least a while yeah end of the night they're shutting down he's cleaning up he's shutting down the kitchen and he volunteers to plunge the clogged sink yep reaches his hand into the filthy dishwater yep only to be seized by the blob and have his body forced down the drain of the sink and like (laughs) it's an impossible feat that is rendered with Practical effects before our eyes. All I say is bravo, Mr. Russell. Bravo, Mr. Darrow. Like, this is hard R, too, yeah. right? The movie has had sort of a light, bouncy, gremlins, poltergeist vibe up yeah. until this point. Yeah. And then after, well, the first kill with Paul is really rough, too. Yeah. Yeah. But this one is where you realize, oh, yeah. no, we're going to turn the taps on. Yeah. This movie's fucking red. And doesn't, does he clog up the sink and more blood sort of shoots way up? Well, the pipes start bursting yeah. as yeah. his body's being forced down the pipes by the blob. And yeah, yeah. it makes a bigger mess, as it turns out. Yeah. But, like... And to the people first seeing this, like, when the waitress walks into the back kitchen and sees these gangly legs sticking out of the sink in this fucking fountain of blood, she doesn't even know how to process what she's seeing. What this could have the, gone so horribly wrong, wrong yeah. with the sink that this would Coming happen? back and like, what? <laughs> Wow. Yeah, that I think you see the moment if you freeze frame at the moment that her, her mind does snap a little bit, but it just doesn't last that long for her. It, because only literally, what, 30 seconds later, she yeah. is then engulfed. Well, yeah, she also has a really good a good death, you yeah. know. Yeah. She runs out to the phone booth to call her boyfriend or yeah. would-be love interest, who is interestingly played by... Jeffrey uh, Duman. Jeffrey Duman, who's a, a regular in yeah. the work of... Uh, yeah. Frank Darabont yeah. and who fans of Walking Dead will know from the first couple seasons of that show yeah. Um, yeah he's the friendly sheriff who says you know he's worried about everyone tonight and he knows that the Kevin Dillard character is not responsible for this and mm-hmm. he has all the angles and he's going to be valuable to us except for no he's dead almost right away yeah He's at the scene of the first crime as soon as possible, and consequently, and the blob the eats him. Yeah. And uh, as she's calling for him in this in the phone booth, yeah. his sort of skeletal, half-digested remains float by in yeah. the blob. Before as the blob is surrounding the complete phone booth, yeah. I remember watching this movie with a friend of ours, uh, Zane. Yeah, and it was at that point where the movie was lost to him, and uh, he actually lost interest and didn't want to keep watching it. Okay. Just too many of the people that he liked, too much of the like nice sort of happy vibe of the movie had yeah. been eaten by the blob. And he's like, this is just a movie where everybody dies. <laughs> yeah. It really seemed to spoil the meal for him, yeah. which is unfortunate because in spite of all this violence that we're describing and in yeah. spite of the fact that, yes, it yeah. kills characters that you kind of like, yeah. I think the movie's a lot of fun. <laughs> it's a way too much fun. Just say you needed to have a little faith, man. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I mean, the, the, it has some unexpected kills. There's also an unwritten rule, especially in horror films, when you put children in positions of terror. Uh, it, some reviewers, it was a line that you just crossed with them. So, and the blob not only does that, 
but it willingly murders children. And you know what? It, he wasn't a completely annoying, annoying character. He was well. a little bit annoying. He was the worst of the two kids. But he but was, he was still, still kind of sweet. And, he was just a kid. And, and he was good-natured. I mean, yeah. it, a little bit of sort of dick, dickish to him, but still, have, like, I mean, he was likable. He was yeah. the best friend of, you know, the, the brother that's, you know, survives. It's funny, because that scene that you're about to talk about, like... They set up early in the movie, there's yeah. this brief scene where Shawnee Smith is doing up her brother's jacket, and he mm-hmm. says, stupid zipper, it always sticks. Yeah. And I remember clocking that, even at a young age, saying, well, that's going to come to later. Yeah. And it does. And at the time, I remember thinking, well, that might be one of the few things about the, the script that I thought, you know, I totally saw that coming. That was that was a real obvious setup. Mm-hmm. The kid, little kid in the sewer, the sort of loudmouth comic relief once again, mm-hmm getting sucked into the blob and not just disappearing like it would have been one thing even if he just disappeared beneath the water and we yeah. didn't see him again yeah but he erupts again half digested and screaming from inside this creature yeah and falls to pieces before shawnee smith and her little brother like yeah you do not see that in horror movies and you especially did not see that in the 80s yeah and it really gave you this feeling and that's, I think, very deliberate in Zerbon's screenplay, that yeah. anybody could die at any minute. Mm-hmm. You could not count on anybody making it to the next reel. The death of Paul at the beginning of the movie establishes it, and mm-hmm. the death of that little kid in the sewer sort of reinforces it. Mm-hmm. You're not guaranteed a happy ending in this one. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you, start, you sort of get the best of both worlds, I think, with the ending, which we can get to when we get to, but mm-hmm. uh, it's really well handled. Yeah, no, it, it, it is a shock the first time you do see it. Now it's sort of, you know, it, it's sort of infamous for the fact that all bets are off. Really, when that first kill kind of happens, but when the boy, it's like, oh. And the first whoa. kill was very much, like I described it as a psycho kill. Yeah. It wasn't unprecedented for them to do that. No. And switch. Here's the, here's your leader. Oh, no, he's not. Here's yeah. the person that'll make you feel safe. Oh, we're going to take him away. Yeah. We'd sort of seen that before, but then the little kid gets it. Yeah. And you're like, what? Yeah. And you go, whoa. <laughs> no. Uh, the blah... Yeah, the, the the blob has some twists that the conventions have rarely seen. It also turns out, which I quite enjoyed, uh, that this is not a beast from outer space. Yes, this is a, that's the one difference between the original and the remake that this thing is actually you know we find out is man made. The eighties had this wonderful habit of. The, the government is actually yeah. you know the real enemy, and they're testing know, a biological weapon on this small town in America. Yeah. And like, yeah, I guess it would be an effective way to destroy a population, but how do you stop this creature then? Because mm-hmm. uh, it takes our small town heroes to yeah. figure out that the cold is the way to stop it. Well, I don't the mean military... they didn't figure that out. Hmm? Had they figured that out? They hadn't. Yeah. Uh, well, they sure didn't behave like they did. All the military guys seem to do is shoot at it and throw grenades. Yeah. There's a wonderful scene where this one particularly badass character is about to get eaten by the blob, mm-hmm. so he pulls all the pins on all of his grenades in some sort of like, I'm going to take you with me thing. Mm-hmm. The blob envelops him and you see this very sort of sad little poof <laughs> vaguely inside the blob. It mm-hmm. didn't win plays or show. Right? Yeah. He's just another piece of the blob now. Yeah. In his head, he was sacrificing himself for the greater good, but in the end, it, even that, just another... He, that backfired. Who's that actor that's also in Robocop? I want to say it's a Paul McCann or that, but that's not the right name. Oh, I can't remember the name of the actor, but he, he, he plays a sheriff who fucking hates Kevin Dillon. Yeah, and he gets marinated by toxic waste in Robocop. 
He yeah. was on ER for a bit. I'm kind of sort of embarrassed to know that, but you know, anyways. He's a recognizable sort of got a yeah. Very he has a face. he has a quite brutal death where they're sort of trying to hide away up in some church and they're putting thing up things up against the door when the blob has broken through and wraps literally around the the back and chest of our character and pulls him on through and yeah, snaps his back. backwards. Yeah, yeah. And it was interesting because at that point he was sort of the last of the law enforcement left, and you mm-hmm. kind of again thought, well. He's the last one left. He's going to redeem himself for being an asshole all this time. He'll, he'll have something to know. Nope. nope. He is dead as well. Okay. Yep. Never mind. <laughs> yep. Darabont's got a mean streak in him. Like, uh, if you doubt that, I mean, yeah, he made, like, some soft, you know, fantasy movies like the, the Green Mile and feel-good movies like The Majestic, Majestic and, and Shawshank. Even Shawshank. But he also fucking wrote and directed The Mist. <laughs> Which With probably has like one the of most the devastating, most brutal, nihilistic, dark, evil horror movies. Ever. At least on the on the North American side, it's just a cold, dark, bitter pale. Now, as much as like he, he, he there's shades of that in this Blob movie. He yes. still knows that this movie is busy being fun. Yes. It is a popcorn wild, wild wild ride fun with some cheesy one-liners, and it is barely ninety some minutes. It's yeah. it's very short. It's in and out. Thank you. Uh, Paul McCrane was the name of the actor that you're talking about who played the asshole deputy who gets bent in half. Mm-hmm. I also wanted to mention Joe Sanaka. He plays Meadows, the guy, the evil doctor who's in charge of the experiment. Who, yeah, yeah, he was in that Walter Hill Crossroads movie. He seems like a, a really sort of soft-spoken, nice, friendly guy, and you kind of believe him when he says, we're doing everything we can to contain it. And underneath it all, this is his baby. Mm-hmm. And he dropped this thing here to see how quickly it would kill this population. And he gives absolutely zero fucks about anyone in the movie. And the fact that he plays that so well with such a charming smile, like, yeah. like uh, he's a good villain. And you enjoy, you know, seeing the blob slowly eke its way into his contam- containment yeah. suit. <laughs> you, were, you were not sad to see that character go. No, and I really like that uh, he's being pulled down the sewer hole and he's bracing himself with a rifle. Mm-hmm. And that the blob pulls him down with such force that it snaps the rifle in half, yeah. taking him down there with him. Like, yeah. Yeah, you're not gonna. You're not. It's like trying to outswim a shark. This mm-hmm. thing. You're not gonna pull yourself out of the blob once it's got a hold on you. Yeah. Just dip your face right in and try and die as quick a death as you can. Because yeah, yeah. <coughs> you are fucked. Yeah. It's not a nice way to die. It is weird that the military and the science guys don't know how to stop the blob. Like I say, once it's, it, it, it's definitely a dumb plot hole. Once it breaks containment, they start shooting at it and start trying to explode it, and nothing's happening. Like none of the lab tests, like they didn't do any micro tests before they released this yeah. thing. Like uh, I think they make some sort of mention about something. Uh, it was growing more rapidly than they had, had anticipated. Yeah. Uh, but like the. The results were far worse in a way that they had anticipated, but still, what they were doing was just fucking evil. Yeah, no. And no. the fact that they didn't have a, you know, there was no way they could contain the town really. In theory, it, when them not being able to trap it in the sewers, that that thing would just eventually consume everything. Yeah. <laughs> yes, pretty much. Well done, science. <laughs> but thankfully. With they the help Kevin of a Dillon. snowmaker, a snowmaking truck, yeah. is that what that was supposed to be? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, they're able to figure out the one weakness of the blob creature, and uh, so many great sequences. We haven't talked enough about Shawnee Smith. Yeah. Uh, Shawnee Smith is a cult figure. She shows up in a lot of genre movies. I remember her from the TV version of The Stand. 
She's I, also I, in a couple of the, uh, the Saw movies. Yeah, I recently saw her in the Desperate Hours remake. Right. From 1990. Um, I think she's a really good actress, and she's one of the really early sort of uh, tough-as-nails sort of female roles. Like, there have been a lot of sort of heroic female figures in horror movies, but there was something different about her. She... Not only was she not someone who needed to be rescued, she was someone who didn't want to be rescued. Mm-hmm. And she was badass. And the, the only point that she does need to be rescued, which is, I think, a really clever scene as well, is when she's planting the bomb on the truck. She and trips. She goes to dive off of the truck. And for the first and only time in the movie, she's slipped up by just the, you know, something getting hung Sheer up. Sheer dumb luck. Yeah. And she ends up dangling precariously off the side of this truck. So Kevin Dillon has to come and save her. But yeah. it's such a great badass moment until that happens. And then it's like, fuck. Oh, 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 dude. Oh, dude, really? You were doing glorious yeah. work there. Yeah. I'm sure she was pissed she had to do that. Yeah, but, I, but I, it was so great because yeah. you did not expect that. Like, mm. she was doing so fucking well. Right? The movie uh, surprises you consistently, like I said. Uh, the special uh, effects are goddamn amazing. Yeah. I think about a sequence that's set in a theater, one of the few things that sort of are direct homage to the original film. Um, when the original blob aired, uh, the blob, you know, sort of melded over the screen. Yeah. Like all of a sudden it was in the projection booth and everybody, yeah. look out, it's going to get you in the yeah. theater. Ha ha, cheesy sort of way to sell your movie. In this one... <laughs> Yeah, there's a loudmouth complaining about a, a slasher movie. They're clearly at a Friday the 13th movie, but they didn't have the rights to say Friday yeah. the 13th. Yeah. And uh, yeah, this guy who's being a loudmouth is suddenly pulled out of his seat and consumed by the blob. And uh, that scene with the projectionist and his yo-yo, yep. where he's glued to the ceiling, but still for some reason yo-yoing yeah. his hand. I'm like, yeah. Wow. Impressive scene after impressive scene. I'm just. Surpri- I'm actually surprised you actually haven't mentioned the whole date rape scene done on. Uh, of course. Eric Elaine, yeah, right. because that's a quite a brutal kill. I mean, com- person completely deserved it as mm-hmm. the one, but I feel sorry for the girl who obviously did nothing wrong. Yeah, yeah, and was slowly digested right before our eyes. Yeah, before well, our we eyes. didn't. We already didn't like that character. He just established himself as a yeah. dick, and like. You can see his whole little date rape kit in the back of the truck. Like, we know this guy's going to die a bad death. So what I love about that kill sequence is it's your classic lover's lane setup, you know? Mm-hmm. The guy's on the hill with this girlfriend, or in this case, this victim he's about to exploit. And shit goes bad. Only this time, instead of an axe-wielding maniac, it's this blob. Mm. It's a weird creature. To call. It's like, you call it a creature feature, but it's not really an, a thing that has a face or arms or... It's this, like, weirdly purple, translucent, throbbing virus thing that just gets Bact- bigger killer as Killer bacteria eats. in a lot of ways. Uh, so a lot of the effects are sort of the dissolving bodies and the effects that happen to people that are, the, are its victim. And it's quite nasty. And it's very visceral and sticky and real. <laughs> like, uh... It allows them to do some way over the top gore effects mm. in a way that's strangely palatable. Mm. Palatable, it's downright gorgeous to watch. It's grotesque, it's violent, it's icky, it's disturbing, it's the plot. In all the right ways. Yeah, in yeah. All the right yeah ways. I know Hollywood has threatened once again to do another version of this. Simon, I've heard rumbles of this. Simon West is currently the director to make this movie. They uh, even have a Hollywood name to it. They're I talking about Sam Jackson, I'd heard. I think it might be, yeah. But Simon West, the man who did Con Air and The General's Daughter and 
Well, it's been 30 years at this point since the Blob movie, I guess, yeah. if you want to keep the name brand alive, you want to do another one, but I do not envy anybody who has to follow this one up. Yep. <laughs> like, uh, I think that in spite of the fact that it has real stakes and real scares, mm -hmm. it also has a bouncy sense of fun. Yeah. There's a ridiculous body count, but I don't feel like drained or, 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 or you know, upset by the movie. Mm -hmm. um, I, I am just constantly riding this roller coaster of, I don't know what's coming next, but I know I'm going to like what's coming next. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, it's just an underrated... I mean, not that it isn't a well-liked movie, but mm -hmm. it's it's not remembered. It doesn't seem to have the, you know, the crowd around it that some of the other uh, 80s movies do. And uh, that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it in the 80s. It's, it's a weirdly timeless movie. Like I said, in Kevin Dillon's hair, I think it'll age well. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily feel very 80s. Yeah. But when we're having a conversation of what are some of the more memorable horror movies of the 1980s, yeah. I want this to be part of that conversation. Chuck Russell doesn't get enough love for me. Doesn't get the love that he deserves, I think. I, feel like I'm I love this Blob remake, though. Yeah, the Blob's awesome. Blob's awesome. Yeah, all right, at number 10, and I was sort of lamenting as I was watching it, rewatching it this time. Yeah. We are going to talk about this movie further. But that is Chuck Russell's remake of The Blob, a far superior version. It is way better than the original, although I do love that opening track on the title track of the original Blob. Anyways, but I digress. I Chuck Russell's had a pretty interesting career. I mean, he's got some clearly some misses, but yeah. he's he was at least a very solid genre director that I think is now going straight to video, which is too bad. Yeah. But um, I... I kind of think it's also his finest hour and that's his, his version of the blob a young Frank Darabont gets writing cred but we'll talk about that later yeah we're gonna actually get into the blob here in a few minutes All right. uh, in 10th position for me it's pretty high ranking for a movie that is so funny but Return of the Living Dead mm. uh, this was the one that I was like I'm either gonna put Return of the Living Dead or Reanimator and if it comes down to one of those two I will put in Return of the Living Dead it's so fucking punk yeah it's it's crazy it's not just another zombie movie yeah I mean we've talked about it twice before on the podcast I love Return of the Living Dead please enjoy Return of the Living Dead it's awesome uh, it also has more teeth to it even though it is funny I still yeah. think it counts as a horror movie in a lot of ways too like yeah. The deaths are brutal, and it doesn't all wrap up in a nice, neat bow at the end. So, yep. in 10th position, Return of the Living Dead. The first time I did this list at number 9, I didn't even have this film. But then you talked about it, and it gave me pause. And I looked online, and I went, okay, okay. I mean, it has all the criteria of a horror movie. Once again, it doesn't terrify, terrify me. It more thrills me. And it is John McTiernan's Predator. I think it's his finest movie as well. And then this is a man who has The Hunt for Red October and Die Hard on his resume, so that's a pretty bold statement. Yeah. It has a homicidal alien re essentially reenacting the most dangerous game. You could argue to have aliens, but whatever. And there's lots of gore, and there are some suspenseful moments, if you will, but it's more, it's definitely like purely an action film. Yeah. Not once did I think Arnold Schwarzenegger was not going to come out on top. But this movie makes me grin from ear to ear every single time. No, and the more I thought about it, the more of a sort of 
Shane, I didn't put put this on my list even higher. Yeah, but. you're fucking crazy if you don't think I had Predator on this list. Yeah. Um, again, well, I'll talk about it when we get there. But my, it's awesome. It's yeah. fucking, it's like boner tastic. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it is like the 80s for me. Yeah. I love the Predator <laughs> so much. Yeah. Uh, in ninth place, I have a, a, a tough thriller called The Entity. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Okay. Uh, it's Barbara Hershey is getting sexually assaulted and raped by yep. a spirit. Yeah. And uh, it's supposedly based on a true story. And it is a very slowly paced 80s movie. And I will agree that a lot of people will say this, that the movie kind of gets less good the deeper into it you go. Yeah. But yeah. But when this movie is scary... It is really fucking scary. scary. It and goes in places that I didn't at first think it would go. I saw this movie way too young as yeah. well. Like, uh, it's it's because it's upsetting. It's the 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 idea of the story is so upsetting that it's yeah. actually stronger than the movie itself. Yes, the idea is the idea alone is terrifying. Yeah. Um, just the fact that she's trapped. Well, I mean, we'll obviously talk, we're going to talk about this again and really soon. Okay, so but uh, in ninth position for me, yeah, the entity. <laughs> yeah, well, guess what's number eight for me? Oh, there you go. <laughs> it, it is the entity. The, the, this, this movie is utterly terrifying. I've watched it again uh, recently, and I mean, the first hour is way stronger than the latter half. Though when their whole the latter half of this movie kind of doesn't quite save it. Right. But and Barbara Hershey's so good in this movie. She is. I mean, it's it's, it's a, a brave, it's fucking a performance. brave, tormented role. Yeah, and I don't think not everyone could have do this movie. Like there'd be some really talented actresses or actor, excuse me, who I don't think could have pulled this off. She's so good in this movie, and it's uh, a scary movie. It's a terrifying. A movie. A lot of these movies are horror movies, but they're more fun than scary yeah. somehow. Yeah, the entity is fucking. scary. It's got fucking teeth and balls. Yeah. So yeah, good on you. I, number eight is the entity. Like, nice. This movie is terrifying. So for me, in eighth place is where I put the razor-gloved Freddy Krueger and the Nightmare... Or Nightmare. <laughs> nightmare on Elm Street. I was about to say The Nightmare Before Christmas. <laughs> but Freddy wasn't in that, was he? Nope. Uh, a Nightmare on Elm Street. But I'm going to actually... like. I wanted to include Wes Craven, obviously, in this list. But mm -hmm. like, I really should be putting A Nightmare on Elm Street 3 here. Because honestly, in my mind, it's a better movie. But I have another one that we're going to talk about very shortly that is by the same writer-director. <laughs> so uh, we'll, we'll, we'll make a shout-out to that later. But okay. the Freddy Krueger ruled the, the top half of the 80s. He mm -hmm. was culturally everywhere. Yeah. And uh, he, had, he had his own TV show down. Yeah. TV shows, lunchboxes, like yeah. anything you can think of. Um, it Comics. Was, the impact culturally is undeniable. Yeah. Um, the last act of the movie is arguably a mess, and I think that if you watch part one and then part three and ignore yeah. part two entirely, uh, you have kind of more of a complete story between the two of them almost. Yeah. Um, but it's such... It upgraded the slasher. It brought it up a mm -hmm. notch, and it's obviously a huge, impactful movie. Yeah. So, yeah, Nightmare on Elm Street, that took place, and there it was at number eight. Not yeah. bad, if you ask me. Yeah. So... At number seven, and this movie is so completely rewatchable, which is kind of funny because there's lots of horrifying things that happen in this movie. Once again, my Canadian boy, Mr. David Cronenberg, and we are going to talk about this movie more, but The Fly. The Fly is so good, especially what not only Chuck Pogue did to the story, but what David Cronenberg did to the story and came together and made a really tragic love story. You do like these people very much, yeah. and what happens to them is both 
equally sad and scary. Um, and it's such there's so many layers to this movie that I enjoy. I mean, it is a, it is a monster movie. Yeah, it's a bug movie, but it's also a love story. Yeah, and it's so well done by these two. Yeah, well, but, we're gonna talk more about the fly, and it's gonna show up on my list too. Yeah. Uh, my seventh position is the remake of The Blob, another movie that we're going to be talking about. Yeah. Chuck Russell and Frank Darabont, I think, were a pretty good combo. They made the sequel to The Fly. Yeah. They made uh, what I was just talking about, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, and this, I think, their finest hour, at least in the 80s, was The, the Blob. The Blob is remake. so much fun. I mean, it's got some wool and some tense moments with The Blob lashes out. A lot of people they don't this make this one. It's not one that shows up on a lot of people's favorites. There's some the hate 80s. for this movie that I just don't quite get. I love it. I yeah. love it. I know that, you know, Kevin Dillon's got a full Swayze rocking. Oh, it's probably head. one of the most 80s performance <laughs> in the 80s. But uh, the movie is so much fun. So yeah. we'll, we'll get into it. But yeah. yeah, in seventh position for me, and this was another one of my ties, by the way, ones. We'll talk about that when we get to my number six. But in seventh position for me, I put The Blob. Okay, well, I understand. I love The Blob. Yeah. And, they, and I was just sort of lamenting, they don't make movies like this anymore, at least by big big studios. Yeah. I kind of wish they at one point they'd just sort of invest and make a good old-fashioned creature from space coming to Earth monster movies because yeah. they just don't do them anymore. Anyways. They don't make them like that anymore, damn it. The, number six, I have the highly entertaining... Uh, somewhat pornographic (laughs) Return of the Living Dead nicely placed man that's ranking high yeah I love this movie so much this is another movie that makes me grin from ear to ear totally exploitive completely wonderfully giddily giddily 80s and insane I love the two characters both the young man and the one who's teaching him on the night what what, what are their names Uh, the young man and the oh Freddy and uh why are you doing this to me? I've seen Sorry. it a thousand times. Exactly. Which is why I'm... Bert. Bert. Yeah. Bert and Freddy. Yeah. That, they make the whole movie for me in a lot of ways. <laughs> and it has Tar Zombie. How can you not have Tar Zombie in the top ten? Anyways. Nice. Uh, so again, I had this sort of as one of my tie spots. So yeah. sort of sharing originally this slot with, with The Blob was the remake of The Fly, the Cronenberg yeah. Fly. Yeah. Both of them great remakes in of themselves and both of them amazing sort of displays of what prosthetic effects can really be used for yeah. in a way that just doesn't happen anymore. Again, yeah. these kids today are too reliant on their computers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I think that the honest truth is that the best way is to meet it halfway have prosthetic effects on set and then use the computer to augment where needed, you know? Yeah. But, uh, yeah, the, for Kronenberg Fly, we will get into when we review it, but okay. in sixth place... Everything about you is changing. Oh, no. What's happening to me? Am I dying? I want to know what's going on. What does the disease want? What's to turn me into something else? Oh, no. A fly got into the transmitter pipe with me that first time when I was alone. Don't go back to it be contagious Uh, I'm afraid don't be afraid no be afraid be very afraid
So we've talked about the fly before on the podcast. Mm. Karen Giese and I discussed it in episode three, which is still one of my favorite episodes, Frank in Review. Mm-hmm. I think it's the first episode that clicked completely where I wasn't too, super awkward as a host mm. and where Karen sort of debuted and established herself as a fantastic guest. Yeah. But in all my excitement of that episode, and we did an okay job on it, we kind of did short drift on, uh, on this fly as far as reviewing it. We talked for less than 10 minutes, mm-hmm. basically went on about how the prosthetic effects were amazing, the mm-hmm. love story and the psychological depth made it a much more meaningful monster movie, and mm-hmm. it kicked ass. Mm-hmm. And all of that is true. I'm going to reiterate all of that now. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think that a lot of times when people are thinking of what are some of the best movies of the 80s, or especially this horror movie of the 80s, mm-hmm. this one sometimes gets missed. Mm. And that's why I don't mind reviewing again and talking about it again, because mm-hmm. there's people out there who love monster movies, who love horror movies, mm-hmm. and who haven't seen this movie. And the idea of that happening out there mm-hmm. really bugs me. Yeah. <laughs> if you love creature features and have not seen and this, have not seen something is wrong Fly, with you. You're missing out. Yeah, you're missing. I out. almost feel sorry for you. Um, there's other movies with as impressive, perhaps special effects in it made in the 80s but as far as level of ick as far as amount of scenes that make me go holy shit (laughs) the fly just wins it might even out yuck day of the dead as Mm, far as just like that's a bold statement but okay it's not just the love the violence but like how it's portrayed yeah like uh, how Cronenberg does not mind lingering on it. In mm. fact, he seems to enjoy it. You know? Rebels in it, yeah. But it, it, when a biker gets his arm broken during a uh, arm wrestling uh, yeah. competition, he kind of celebrates that compound pressure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis, who were bumping uglies at the time, yeah. uh, teamed up with Canadian cult filmmaker uh, David Cronenberg to do a remake of a amusing, but if we're honest, not that great horror movie. Yeah, they the improved. Fly. They improved on the story in, in so many ways. It's it's kind of scary. In the original movie, the transformation is basically the scientist gets a huge bulbous fly head, and, an and the fly gets a tiny and an arm, and the fly gets a tiny little human head. Yeah, uh, and it's kind of more funny and amusing than anything else. Yeah, where this, where this, they they literally have this sort of. Rebirth and then deconstruction of Seth, who then you know evolves into Brundlefly, if you will. And it so seems to fit so comfortably with the Cronenberg aesthetic, right? Yeah. This is coming off of things like Videodrome, but entering and he just done more, and he's, he's coming off the sort of so so reception of Dead Zone. But, but it was financially well received, and this is sort of his more commercial phase. He was getting a lot of recognition for his work, but not a lot of money. It was his so highest grossing sudden, film. Yeah, so all of a sudden he starts Still making to this day. Dead Zone and The Fly, which are very commercially accepted yeah. films. And there's still Cronenberg movies, I would argue, but especially The Fly. Mm-hmm. The sort of uh, psychological transformation being made very horrifyingly physical yeah. is something that we see in a lot of his movies. Yes. Uh, this is just in a creature feature aesthetic instead of an art house sort of David Lynch kind of aesthetic yeah. and as you know that's the aesthetic I will prefer yeah. I will much prefer to watch you know Jeff Goldblum morph into a fly uh, slowly over the course of a movie than to watch you know I don't know Elias Cateus lick somebody's scar tissue in, in, in Crash you know it's just 
uh, both have their qualities, but I appreciate one type of kink more than the other. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. You know, for a director that has often been accused, and, and this is a similar criticism that Kubrick experienced in his career, is a director who's more in his head than, than in, in his heart. Yeah. The, f- the coldness to Cronenberg, you yeah. can't deny it. There, it's, it's, almost, it's very analytical and detached, and it's like more you are watching and observing and critiquing the characters than you are empathizing or relating to them. But it but is in, almost a detached scientific yeah. analytical study than yes. it is an emotional thing. Yeah, and that is deliberate. But with The Fly, it is very emotional. It is probably Cronenberg's most, emotion, most emotional film in his entire catalog. And I think um, Gina Davis does most of the heavy lifting for that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Um, it's mainly about what's happening to him, and he's turning into a mutant fly, so yeah. obviously we can understand him being a little bit distracted by that. Yeah. But Goldblum has to work against all this physical prosthesis yeah. and do a very physical, and he does a great job of it, transformation. Oh, yeah. Gina Davis's job, in a way, is as tougher, tougher, because she has to watch it, yeah. and we have to see her start with sympathy and horror, yeah. and sort of move to a point of revulsion. Like yeah. she wants to help him and see him through this, and she does love him, but it crosses a point where she's not comfortable with it or safe with it. Yeah. And when she finds out that she's pregnant, yeah, that's some next level horrifying because she yeah. does not know what this bun in the oven is gonna be. Yeah, yeah. No, one thing, and this is a consistent theme in a lot of Cronenberg films of this time, is that the protagonist is usually his downfall or is um, the start of a lot of the problems is, is that the women overwhelm the male protagonists in a lot of these Cronenberg films. It's there in Dead Ringers where the two twins fight over the woman. Mm-hmm. It's there in the Dead Zone where Johnny Smith you know, says no to just the normal um, seduction of his girlfriend. He, he opts not to because he's overwhelmed by your sexuality mm. and of course makes a decision that causes him to go into the dead zone if you will yeah. um, it's there in the brood where the woman with our, our hero is you know overwhelmed by this evil creature making ex-wife of his um, it's and once again it's, it's explored and same here at the fly where Seth Brundle is this sort of insecure Brilliant, but uh, socially stunted man who is completely obsessive, almost, I think, on, almost on a spectrum, if you will, kind of individual who, who is completely overwhelmed by the Gina Davis character. I mean, lovingly, she's not evil, you know, she's, she's very sweet and everything, but he can't, he, he's so overwhelmed by it. What his he bring, need to yeah. impress her yeah. and his need for her to be, you know, yeah. impressed by him yeah. uh, supersedes some common sense. And his insecurity about when she just leaves to go and deal with the problem with her ex-boyfriend. It, it's that action alone forces him to drink and then go into the, you know, these very phallic, well, not phallic, but very organically female telepods, if you will. Um that theme once again is explored to the hill and like I said it, it, it's a common in theme in this case there's nothing that Gina Davis does that instigates no. it it's all his insecurity not yeah. her aggression yeah but yeah I see I guess what you're saying yeah it's just something I've noticed with David Cronenberg like, uh, with David Cronenberg films uh, up until really and Butterfly I mean it's there in Crash as well but a lot of our char- a lot of the male characters and I do think uh, and even in Videodrome to, to some extent I mean with Videodrome that character is very morally flawed to begin with mm-hmm. but he is completely taken down the rabbit hole by Deborah Harry so it's also there in Videodrome 
But I really think a conduit for Cronenberg, and because I think there's elements of Max Ren in Cronenberg, I think there's elements of Seth, definitely Seth Brundle, and you know he stated that the father figure in the brood is very much him, who was going through a divorce at that time. That Cronenberg, I think the, the, these characters that are conduits for him really struggle with the strong females in, in their lives, and it, it creates a lot of inner turmoil for them, which leads to their ultimate demise, if you will. Well, to be honest, I've never really thought about that in The Fly. It's yeah. been too busy being a fucking awesome monster movie for yeah. me to think that deeply about it. Yeah, uh, I do agree with what you're saying as far as it being his sort of personal hang-ups that cause yeah. him to get sloppy. Yeah. On a day where he wasn't distracted by what's Gina Davis doing, why is she spooked by me, what what if, what can I do to further impress her? Yeah. Maybe he would have taken the extra few steps to be careful. Yeah. You know? But it's it's Gina Davis that completely drives the romance. Yeah, well, it because Seth, me. because Seth Jeff Goldblum, Seth Brundle, honestly, like he's never really been in. Like, he's most likely a virgin. Never really been in. It, it's sort of hint, strongly hinted at that he's never really had a romantic sexual relationship. He's always been around his computers and his yeah. science. It reminds me. I recently talked about the Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, when, which when, is also a very feminist movie. When when Jodie Foster comes to visit Hannibal Lecter, how yeah. excited he is by her, yeah. and how much he lights up when she's around, and he yeah. has to sort of stifle it. I think that's kind of true of Seth Rundle in this yeah. movie too. He is so he's got so much invested in making this relationship work. Yeah, that it turns a really smart guy into a monster. Yeah, and that's one of the things that happens. Yeah, no, absolutely. I I completely agree with that. Um, if you watch the relationship carefully like I did this time you will see that Gina Davis in a lot of ways holds all the cards for the most part um, even when he is transforming into the fly even the early stages he doesn't go alpha male until he turns into a monster yeah literally yes yeah <laughs> And, and that's when he finally says, no, we're doing it my way, the fuck what you say. Until yeah. then, even if he hates it, he acquiesces to all of her demands. Yeah. He, he really and fights he, her on her wanting to yeah, get the and, abortion. Yeah, and he struggles with it. And he acts like a child, even when she confronts him saying, you know, something's really wrong has happened to you. You look bad, you smell bad. Yeah. And he has this drug addict rant. You're just jealous. All I'm saying, basically, is Cronenberg has a wonderful habit of creating very dominating, strong, I mean, sensitive and, for the most part, loving female characters, but they're very well fleshed out. There's a reason why a lot of very good female actors are drawn to his work. They're quietly powerful. They're not yeah. alpha powerful. They, they they don't express their power. They just yeah. possess it. And a lot of his males, I've noticed, that like they really struggle to, you know, to be around them properly. Yeah. I want to talk about, uh, is it John Getz? Yep. Um, My man, John Getz. I know him from Blood Simple, yeah. the first Coen Brothers movie, but he's sort of the uh, off-again, who wants to be on-again ex, who has an extraordinarily unfortunate fate yep. of having both his hand and his foot melted by this terrible acid spit by the Brundle fly. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, and this, they did make a sequel to this movie, coincidentally, which was uh, written by Darabont. Yeah. where we see that he is made into a mad person because of this fallout. Yeah. And he is portrayed in the corner of the movie he possesses. He's kind of the obstacle villain obstinate role, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yet he shows up in the third act to try and kill the monster and save the maiden fair. 
I think he's that the, there's a different... He redeems himself slightly, so when his fate occurs, you, you do kind of go, ah. There's a different movie from the perspective of that character, if you yeah. want it, yeah. where he's kind of the quiet hero of this story, too, yeah. Yeah. right? His girlfriend gets stolen from him by a mad scientist who turns yeah. into a mutant bug, impregnates her, and then tries to, you know, put her into this pod so that all three of them yeah. can mold into one horrible creature. Yeah. And he showed up to stop it, and he didn't win the girl, but he did lose his foot and his leg and yeah. his hand, you know? To uh, save the day, essentially. And, like, he does, he's not the active person who ends the, e- the, the, the evil or the, you know, the tragedy, yeah. but... If he's not there, Gina Davis maybe doesn't make it through this movie, right? Yeah. It's interesting because everything tells you that this guy's an asshole. We shouldn't like him. We shouldn't mm-hmm. cheer for him. Until you take a step back and look at his perspective, right? It's it, it's very human and relatable in some ways with the way this man works. Like, well, once again, here's another male who struggles to be around the Gina Davis character. He's very much in love with her and doesn't know how to handle himself. And and. Be, and behaves almost like another petulant child. Both uh, Seth Brundle and what's the John Getz character's name? I can't remember his name right now. Anyways, they both act like petulant children around this Gina Davis character. They're in the schoolyard when this girl, as far as this girl yeah. is involved. And she bounces from sort of one insecure relationship to another in a lot of ways. Um, but the, the character arc for this, for this character is also kind of fascinating to watch because it is a three-person play in a lot of ways. It, the majority of this movie takes place in the warehouse of Seth Brundle. You could, I mean, it's also very operatic in its presentation from the music by Howard Shore. But the John Getz character as well, his story arc where he starts off as the heel and then almost redeems himself to the point where he's a tragic character at the end of this story. Yeah, it's, uh, like I say, I, I like when you can step back. We yeah. don't like him and we're not supposed to like him, but yeah. if you get objective, you can um, there's a sequence in this movie uh, that has always troubled me because again it's not one of these movies that I saw too yeah, young yeah. I think I mentioned it when we did the review before but yeah. Gina Davis has this anxiety dream yeah. about giving birth to this like larval creature this larva yeah and the doctor that delivers the baby is right. played by David Cronenberg himself yeah, who didn't want to do it but that image of this writhing creature being removed from this woman's body yeah like i'm not a, i'm not a woman but like as a man that freaks me out yeah. as a woman who either has gone through the pain of childbirth or, yeah. birth or anticipates it yeah i can see that being a real trigger scene yeah yeah <laughs> in fact gina davis had said that she would have done the sequel even as a cameo yeah. if not for the fact that it was another birth scene yeah and she just hates doing those yeah yeah, it's understandable. And after shooting that one, I, I totally get it. Yeah. It's kind of funny. Mel Brooks, you know, helped make this movie. That's eh? right. He had an interesting production career. He did. He did. Um, I want to talk about, I mean, we mentioned him before. I mean, and as good as Gina Davis and John Getz are in this movie, and they both deserve their praise and accolades, the true true hero of this movie is obviously Jeff Goldblum who almost didn't get the part believe it or not yeah people didn't like his uh, casting at all did they yeah no and once again it was so the right choice where we could have this person who was also like very physical and even to point sexual but also this sort of man child insecure nerd type it was the right choice but not an obvious one yeah uh, especially in this phase of Goldblum's career, yeah. and I'm a defender of Goldblum. Yeah. He has a whole series in the '80s of just fucking barely there performances, yeah. <laughs> like where he's just mumbling his way through the movie and yeah. getting off on the fact that he's Jeff Goldblum and yeah. he's a, you know a weird, quirky, good-looking guy. Yeah. Uh, 
but when he invests, he will show us that he is a really, really good actor. He's amazing. The the his story arc and what, you know the range of emotions he goes through because he does. He he literally evolves uh, much like a pupa. You know, you know, a caterpillar to. Uh, a butterfly, where he starts off once again as this sort of innocent man-child who then has this sexual awakening uh, and then starts to, even though he doesn't know it at the time because it's the beginning of his deconstruction, his reconstruction of human body, where he becomes this super superhuman, huge libido, powerful um, figure. Alpha that male. He always wanted to be. Yeah. Uh, and, at, you know, feels threatened when, once again, the Gina Davis, you know, challenges that yeah. uh, but just that sort of oh, it's like a teenager walking on the schoolyard pumping his chest uh, and, and it hits that beat quite well to when he realizes that his, bo- like his body is decaying and to go from a high status character to a low status character when Gina visits him after what seems to be like a month almost yeah. where the time has passed where Goldblum has kicked her out after she discovered him with that other woman kind of thing yeah um, and just the shame the character is now feeling when he comes behind that pod walking on down. Like that's that's all Goldblum, and in you know makeup nonetheless. Yeah, it's and it's quite the journey for the character. He's such a distinct actor. You yeah. can always recognize Goldblum for his weird pauses and quirks and his yeah. sort of very pronounced delivery. Yeah, it reads under the makeup. Yeah, like there's a very clear distinguishing point. Uh, towards the end of the movie when Gina Davis is defending herself and she rends the jaw yeah. off of the uh, Brundlefly creature. Yeah. And from that point in the movie on, we don't have Jeff Goldblum anymore. Yeah. The special effects are amazing. The creature has nothing more to say. It's full monster at that point and yeah. it works to serve the movie. But yeah. until that point, we are 100% of the time looking at Jeff Goldblum yeah. and feeling the character. Yeah. And if it was just a character who completely disappeared in the makeup, I wonder if that would be as true. Yeah, no, yeah. Um, I, I also love the fact that this film is a great analogy and an examination of death itself and how it's all it's it's infinite we all will go on this we journey we all go on our own metamorphosis yeah it's just a long gradual 60 yeah. to 80 year one and we really see that I, I think that's another thing that's so relatable about the Seth Bundle character because he's such a good person to begin with and it's so tragic that this happens he doesn't deserve any of this yeah yeah like he's like a, like an innocent child in a lot of ways so you, once again you really feel for both of these lovers who it's doubly tragic too when you think about this device that he had developed yeah. like it's a transporter. It's like the baby steps to Star Trek being able... It would have know, changed the world if it were true. Yeah, and at the end of this, not only is he dead, but his, his invention has been completely destroyed. Yeah. 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 Um, the lighting as well. There's the monologue that he gives about the politics of insects. This is right before things really start to go haywire. Mm-hmm. I think this... Has he kidnapped her at this point? No, she tells him that she's... She, she was going to tell him that uh, she was pregnant. Right. I think in that scene and there's that shot where the moonlight hits him and he gives that brilliant monologue and Cronenberg you know who as a kid wanted to be that, that kind of scientist that works with insects there's a name for it entomologist entomologist thank you and it does this great monologue about the politics of insects and how some use them as slaves and whatnot. that I think encapsulates a lot of what that character is thinking at that point of time it's such and not, not enough credit gives to how good that monologue really, really is. And it's a great beat, once again, by that Seth, by the Seth Brundle character. It's another classic case of a movie being way better than it has any business yeah. being. 
Yeah. Like, sure, David Cronenberg wants to do a remake of The Fly, and you got Gene Davis and Jeff Goldblum, for sure, I'll check that out. That'll probably be a good time. And, and, and that's It's what actually going to be one of the best movies of the 1980s. And that's what he added to it. Like, apparently the Pogue script had the, you know, physical reconstruction, uh, you know, of the man into the fly, the gradual reconstruction, that's Pogue. Mm-hmm. What Cronenberg did was, at, I mean, but it was a husband and wife, where Cronenberg wanted to see the relationship, you know, in its incubation to its growth till its tragic end. All of that was Cronenberg's idea, and it's such a brilliant choice. It could have gone awry really easily, and yeah. if you watch, the, the edition I have has a really long, almost three hours of, uh, yeah. documentary on the making of the film there's two scenes that almost happened that I think would have really hurt the movie yeah. there's a scene where he does the first pass experiment on the baboon and it's turned inside out mm-hmm. and he beats it to death mm-hmm. to put it out of its misery Yeah, I remember and that. the scene was so awful that they people had a hard time stomaching it and it made us all of a sudden see him as a mad scientist instead yeah. of this guy who was falling in love with someone yeah that he would put subject an animal to that and that he would be able to bludgeon it like that and, and not be affected by it. Yeah. And it was then, the right choice to, to remove it. Yeah, it was righteously cut. Like I said, that could have steered the ship in the wrong direction. Yeah. It's funny how one little scene could have really changed how we felt about that character. Yeah. But the other thing that could have really killed it was the original ending, which would have seen, uh, you know, Gina Davis and John Getz sort of together and recovering after the ordeal. Yeah. And we see inside her womb that she's kept the baby. Yeah. And that the baby is a butterfly. Yeah, that's... Nope. Yeah. Nope, nope. Nope, yeah. nope, nope. Yeah. Uh, and that was shot. Like, they actually did a pass on it. Yeah. And that would have really been a game changer for me, seeing yeah. that. Like, that doesn't make sense. Even if it was going to turn into a butterfly, it would be a worm first, at least. Like, yeah. uh, I thought it was her nightmare to give birth to a worm. Like... She'd been resolved to change to have an abortion until yeah. she saw the complete monster that her, the father of the baby became, and then after seeing that, decided no, mm-hmm. keeping it. None of that makes sense, and it was almost in the movie. Yeah, like I said, a little bit to the left or right, and you've got a not great movie on your hands. But because everything was handled so precisely, yeah, game cast, amazing prosthetic, sticky special effects that hold up to this day. Oscar-winning makeup effects, actually, amazing. One of the still amazing. One of the few horror films that has ever won an Academy Award, and righteously so. Absolutely, what was Uh, it up against? I would love to see what would have beat this for best special effects. I don't know. I know they're so good. The, the scene where he opens up his medicine cabinet, he's got the different body parts that have fallen off, obviously, throughout the week or weeks, and you're just like, whoa. Seriously, if you have a like easy gag reflex, you were gonna have a problems with not this your movie. movie. <laughs> the re- you know, the vomiting of the, you know, the the acid that that's how he eats food. Teeth falling out of his mouth, fingernails being pulled out of his hands. Yeah, no, like this movie, it's an endurance test at, at, at one point. It really, really <laughs> is. If you have a problem seeing body fluids and and icky things that go bump in the night, you will have a hard time with this movie, and rightly so. But it's once again one of the reasons why this movie is so choice yeah. and so good. I don't think it's Cronenberg's finest hour. I think there's a couple of other films. It's probably but, close for me. But it's it's up there. It's it's for one of the movies that he sort of, in a way, is one of his most con- commercial and mainstream. Yeah, I still think it's up there with some of his very best work. Oh, it's one of his best of his works. Yeah. I would just put a couple of films. That were more ambitious and at least I think executed yeah. just as well. But the fly, what he added to it was so good. Uh, the fact that they decided to really focus on the reconstruction of the or the evolution of the human body to 
an insect body was such a great idea and it's not, so different from yeah, the original. It's not that they met the promise of the original. It's that yeah. they so over exceeded the original yeah. as to obliterate it, really. Yeah. Like, as far as I'm concerned, there is no other fly movie. Yeah. And uh, it would be a hard one to top. And, to it's, so, it, it, and it's so operatic as well. Like, it is a lot of mel- melodramatic in some sort of ways with the music. I know I've mentioned Howard Shore, but there is a musical of this play now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, which Cronenberg had a hand in, um, but in a, yeah, it's very operatic in a lot of ways. Especially there's, there's that sequence where Goldberg is walking down the street in a jacket but no undershirt, and this is right before the infamous arm wrestling scene with right. that famous Canadian boxer. Um, it's yeah, like it's it's, it's just the music, mwah, yeah, done by the London orchestra, London, London orchestra. There's a name for it, yeah, symphony orchestra. Yeah. so good. Interestingly, note we should probably wrap it up. Cronenberg himself floated a rumor a few years ago yeah. that he was considering re-remaking The Fly. It turned out to be total bullshit. But if the, it's one of those things where I would be pissed off if they tried to remake The Fly at this point. Yeah. So if someone has to remake The Fly, I guess let's <laughs> see it, Cronenberg. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is my turn right at number five I have the wonderfully giddy and slapstick brilliant and really like this movie is a marvel to to look at when you this is when you realize this is pre-cgi and all the camera tricks that really like simple tricks in a lot of ways like speeding up the film the speed of the film if you will but Evil Dead 2 this movie is glorious and I think the first hour is brilliant it sort of tails off a little bit in the last half hour but one of the, I think the one of the most slimiest movies I've ever seen. There's lots and lots of slime in this movie, and I, and Bruce Campbell, he is the shit. Yeah, he's awesome. But there you go, Evil Dead Two. There was only room for one sort of funny movie in my top five, so uh, Evil Dead Two didn't go make it to it. In fifth place, this was another one of ones that was originally a tie, so this may be artificially high. In fifth place, Arnold Schwarzenegger versus Predator. Yeah. <laughs> It is an, a big, dumb action movie at its heart, but yeah. the creature design, the idea of this alien that comes to Earth as a game planet to just hunt mm-hmm. the most badass game it can find, mm-hmm. is really, really strong. I love mm-hmm. the design of the creature. I love how macho and badass the movie is. The score kicks my ass. <laughs> like uh, I just I have a lot of love for Predator. Uh, it, it's a little bit artificially high again it was sort of being matched with another science fiction movie yeah. which I'm about to talk about but uh, first we need to hear what your number four yeah, is yeah well before I get to number four I'm like, I mean I'm glad you mentioned Predator I mean this movie is so reeked and marinated with testosterone <laughs> yeah. that my number four film that I will very hopefully quickly segue into also has so much testosterone that people like that Chad Bono person didn't need to have that surgery but they just yeah. needed to watch this Predator and then the next film we're going to talk about maybe three times over and you would just grow a pair of testicles boom because there's it's it's comedically so over the top testosterone I can understand why some women would find this movie too much to watch yeah and it is very 80s um 
but yeah, I'm, Predator's awesome. But the next four, that is also utterly terrifying, but also extremely macho machismo. But then, in a lot of ways, it's not, because these macho people get smacked around very quickly. And that is, I think, James Cameron's finest hour. And I do love some of his other movies, but his Aliens is utterly terrifying. It's intense. Once the Marines realize they are over their heads and yeah. when they're first attacked, that movie is tense, tense, tense. Yeah. And like even it was too much for Roger Ebert in the day when he first watched this movie. Yeah. Yeah. This is the uh, first time so far in the list where we have the same movie ranking in the same place. Yeah, and I suspect not the last. Yeah, but Aliens is my fourth position. I sort of tied it up with Predator as they're both kind of maybe science fiction movies, and they're both very, very macho. But very actiony. If I have to say which one's better than the other, Aliens is the better movie than the two. Well, and here's here's the thing, though. I mean, it's I, so I, awesome. I, I've avoided this question for a while because at some point you do kind of have to have the question of which is the better horror movie, which is Ridley Scott's Alien or James Cameron Aliens. I find some things. Ridley Scott's the scarier movie, but Aliens, I think, is just the better one. I think uh, Aliens, but Aliens is so insanely intense. Yeah. Um, I mean, you've got one, one of, well, I don't want to get too much into it. Because we're going to review Aliens. But Aliens is so tense, and there's so many classic scenes, and it has one of the best lines of the decade, you know, catch lines, if you will. Aliens, I don't know, I, I, I finally came to the agreement that Aliens is the far superior movie to Alien. I love Alien, don't get me wrong, right. I think Aliens is a great sci-fi horror movie, it's a scary movie, but Aliens is so well made, and so well, anyways, acted, but... There you go. Um, Third place. Top three time. Yeah, here we go. This isn't the only time Stephen King was on this list, was it? For me? Nope. I had Pet Sematary, remember? So, yeah, I have the Stanley Kubrick masterpiece. Epic. It's two and a half hours. Very hypnotically slow burn, but also utterly, primarily terrifying. And that's uh, Stephen King's novel. Stanley Kubrick's homage more than adaptation, The Shining. Nice. The Shining is number three. Well, we'll talk about it more. But yeah, yeah. we're gonna review the Kubrick masterpiece as well. I'm surprised to say, but we do not match in our third position. So I will apologize in how much we are disagreeing. Okay. But ridiculously high, some will argue. Too high, many would argue. But I will sit them down and tell them why they're all wrong. In third place, an American werewolf in London. Um, it is the first sort of broadly accepted, as far as I know, like full on horror comedy of the yeah. modern age, yeah. sort of like Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, yeah. where the balance of, you know, chocolate and peanut butter of yeah. the scares and the laughs were done yeah. so right. Yeah. I love me, love me, love me an American werewolf in London. Yeah. And, uh, it, it's, there's still not a better werewolf movie. No. And I, I and I don't, there ever will be. It's sort of the jaws of werewolf movies. Yeah. Well, it's it's funny that you mentioned that because at number two, I this movie there, there's too many good things. Once again, this movie too many good things that make me smile about this movie, and it is both equally terrifying and equally funny, and of course you know thrilling. Uh, it's such a master of its special effects in a lot of ways that it's only surpassed by one other movie because with its special effects. Yeah. Um, and it's also once again kind of bug fucking sane in, in some moments. Like, just completely left field, we kind of go, whoa, whoa, whoa. So I do have John Lannis, and I love John Lannis so much, uh, that I do, at number two, have American Werewolf in London. It's 
there is nothing I would change with this movie. Right. My second place, drum roll of my favorite horror movies of the eighties, yeah. would have to be Stanley Kubrick's Shining. Yeah, it's the fucking bomb. It's terrifying. Uh, it's an absolutely terrifying movie, as we will discuss when we review it. Yeah. Uh, as an adaptation of the novel, it's almost a failure. Yeah. But as a movie that works your nerves, it's probably hard to compare to anything except maybe the exorcist for me yeah like it really really puts you on edge and it's you're being handled by a really strong filmmaker when you're watching the shining and you know it almost immediately yeah so yeah the shining is the number two horror movie of the 80s it's terrifying and we're going to agree spoilers on number one yeah Well, I, I'm just gonna, you know, start this little love fest with a bold statement. And I'm gonna say this, and I don't care what anyone else thinks, they can go fuck themselves. <laughs> but the best horror movie of all time, all time, all time. You know, you're throwing Jaws under the bus. I'm throwing Jaws under the bus because there's, <laughs> j- there's some things I would have changed with Jaws. But that is John Carpenter's The Thing. This movie is utterly terrifying. It's so well written. The special effects are off the hook. Yeah. <laughs> um, everyone is on top of their game, and like the, the it, it was a marathon to make this movie, and that's John Carpenter's The Thing. This movie is so good. <laughs> I see this movie at least once a year. It's one of the and rare it's something cases. that I discover something new about it every single time. Like this movie took such a fucking bath in the box office because yeah. it opened against ET and yeah. it could have just disappeared. But because of the burgeoning video market, not only did it not disappear, yeah. but I think that I will make the case that it's a more significant and perhaps even more culturally impactful movie than Spielberg's ET. Mm-hmm. ET couldn't be beat in the eighties, but the test of time will tell. And I think The Thing is just a fucking amazing movie. Yeah. And yeah, it comes from outer space, maybe it's science fiction, but the movie is quite thrilling, and yeah. we're going to review it, so I won't go too deep into it. But yeah. we agreed in only two spots, the fourth and first position yeah. out of 25 80s movies. Well, you had some interesting ones so in the list. The ones that piss you off were The the, the Vanishing and The Road Warrior? You don't think well, The Vanishing, I understand. That's a good choice. I didn't really give thought to The Vanishing. I mean, I looked at it a couple of points... I just made I some choices with thrillers, really but it is a terrifying. It, it is a terrifying movie, and it, 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 I mean it's a psychopath. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, it gave me pause. Um, the Road Warrior, I would have to kind of call bullshit, just because it is so much an action it's film. A, but I do have both Predator and Aliens on this list. Yeah. And let's be perfectly honest. I don't think Predator is all that terrifying. It's thrilling. I think if I had the list to do again, those two slasher movies probably would slide down the scale of it. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen The Burning. I I was trying to represent for the slashers of the 80s aesthetic, and originally it was a tie, so I would have, you know, maybe had one of those movies instead of both of them, but... uh, And uh, Predator's probably artificially high on the list. Yeah. I I love it, and it's of the world of aliens, but if you put aliens and Predator next to each other, uh, Aliens is just clearly the better movie. Yeah, oh... uh, uh, for the most part. And I did sweat this list. I really did spend some time trying to figure it out. And yeah. I made hard cuts. Like, not putting Day of the Dead on the list really kind of kicked my ass. And not including any Friday the 13th, even though I love Friday the 13th, kind of kicked my ass. But, yeah. like, I was worried that we were going to be repeating the same movies to each other over we and over We clearly did not. And uh, that, uh, you know, between the two of us, I didn't want 
some obvious glaring miss, mm-hmm. which I'm sure will happen. Someone's going to write rank and review at gmail.com and they're going to tell us how in the fucking world did you not include, I don't know, Waxwork or Cujo or... Or Witchboard. Or, you know, yeah. yeah. You know, name your, name your poison. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of movies that could be on this list to the left and right. I'm a really big fan of Angel Heart. Yeah, Angel Heart's good. Uh, I, I toyed with having that on the list, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know... Uh, it was a really strong decade for, for mm. horror cinema. Yep. So uh, I think list success. Shall we move on? Yes. How would you know if it was really me? Somebody in this camp being what he appears to be. Right now, that may be one or two of us. By spring, it could be all of us. If it takes us over, then it has no more enemies. Nobody left to kill it. And then it's one. There's a storm hitting us in six hours. We're going to find out who's who. Nobody trusts anybody now. Benny's was right there, Mac. I swear to God, it had a hold of him. It was one of those things out there trying to imitate him, Gary. You gonna let him give the orders? I mean, he could be one of those things. We're gonna find out who's the thing. Gotta love John Carpenter. Who? You gotta, or you can't listen to my podcast anymore. <laughs> it's it's uh, a prerequisite. Yeah, he's had his ups and downs. Not everything he puts his name to is amazing. Nope, there's but some he's had enough genuinely classic movies to my mind that mm-hmm. if he puts his name on a project, I'm gonna show up, and I'm gonna show up anticipating potential greatness. Yeah, and that that has its pluses and minuses. You know, maybe yeah. maybe I would like some of the other John Carpenter movies more if I didn't bring all the baggage of being such a fan. Yeah, but there's no problem here. I, no problem heaping praise on top of the John Carpenter the thing. Yeah, I think it's his masterpiece. I think it yes. blows Halloween out of the fucking water entirely. Absolutely, it's, absolutely. I, and I, I love I some Halloween. Who likes? Yeah. I, I love Halloween, but like. Yeah. The thing's an untouchable horror movie. Yeah. You're talking, you, you said boldly when we did our list. Yeah. That it's the greatest creature feature ever made. and it, Greatest it, horror film ever made. Yeah. Uh, and for good reason. I, the way I would tend to agree, I mean, I, my knee-jerk reaction is Jaws, always Jaws. Mm-hmm. But if we're talking about a monster movie, mm-hmm. this is the great, one of the greatest monsters I've ever seen because it's many monsters all at once. Yeah. But on top of being the greatest monster movie you've ever seen, it's one of the best psychological horror movies you've ever seen. Yeah. It's doing both of those genres simultaneously and very fucking well. One of the things that makes The Thing, I think, a better horror movie, maybe not a better movie, but a better horror movie than, say, Steven Spielberg's Jaws, is that the idea, the conceit, and the execution of the creature itself, Yeah. the monster itself, I mean, you talk about the shark uh, in Jaws, it, there's so much imagination and just the idea that this thing has its no identity of its own that it has to mimic things that it digests if yeah. you will um, is so much and it's a huge it's an integral part of the story of the thing but if you look at the shark in Jaws you know it's a fake shark in a lot of ways it's, yeah. it, it's a it's a rubbery gigantic model that's moving uh, it's helped out by the music and the editing and the sh- and the shot sequence of Steven Spielberg. It's it's masterful. Jaws is my favorite movie of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think just the fact that they couldn't make this movie today. 
I honestly think that if the same people came today to try and make the thing, that they would not capture the magic that they had with thing. One of it is Rob Boutin. We have a very, at this point, very young, ignorant, ambitious, brilliant model maker FX person and his team it's not just yeah. him his team doesn't get enough shout but out but this was his opportunity this was his make or break gig yeah and it he, was a special effects extravaganza he actually hunted John Carpenter down on the set of The Fog when he heard that he was going to be doing the you know the thing yeah so the fact that he was so young and ambitious and I mean there's legendary stories of him you know not meeting deadlines and taking certain extracurricular drugs to keep himself away and if you look at the designs of the creatures you understand no yeah <laughs> anyways um, <coughs> I don't think a middle aged Rob Boutin could pull off what this young person did I mean he maybe not in the same time frame anyway well and the fact that they tried to redo this they did the prequel and yeah. the makers today could not replicate what Rob Boutin and his team Hold off. Dick Baker is also involved in this in a lot of ways. There is a contingent, and I don't want us to talk about the freeboot uh, too much, but apparently when they shot the freeboot, they did use an awful lot of practical special effects, and some of them are still in the movie. Yeah. It was sort of a retrofit. They decided, yeah. at, after all, no, let's put more CGI into it. Yeah. It was a classic case of a studio fucking with them, which is exactly why the original John Carpenter movie isn't a failure. Because I can totally see some but studio. Well, they just thing. couldn't replicate some of the stuff they wanted to because they didn't have Boutine and they yeah. didn't... But I could totally see, like, yeah. if, if this movie, if the original thing had, a, like, a producer that was more yeah. like, you know, in the world of the 80s, in a world where E.T. is going to be the biggest monster hit, right? Yeah. Um, you know, well, does it have to all be guys? And does it have to have such a bummer ending? Yeah. And, you know, yes. Yes to both of those. Yes. Absolutely. We should actually briefly talk about the plot of this movie. I know most people who are no, probably it, listening to this cast have seen the thing and would probably, hopefully, nodding in approval about everything you know, we've said. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, anyways, the plot of this movie goes is that an American team living and working up in the Arctic are visited one day by a very angry Norwegian people driving a helicopter trying to kill a dog. At, at, at that point, we don't know why. And in doing so, get themselves killed invading this American camp, if you will. We, things go from worse when they soon realize that the dog that they have welcomed into their compound is not actually a dog, but a thing from another world. And it has the power to replicate. And they soon realize that not everyone is who they seem to be. Mm -hmm. This thing is a glorious exercise of a couple of things, both of the splatter genre and of the thriller genre. It does both things so, so well that there are so many horrific special effects that are literally art to look at. Like, it's yeah. the stuff that nightmares are made of. And it was all there on set for the actors to yeah. react to. It was none of this blue screen, yeah. here's a tennis ball to where its eyes are. No. It's all tangibly real. On it's set. such a celebration of practical effects. Really, only like the American Werewolf in London would be coming even remotely close to the sheer artistry that this whole team pulls off. Because it's not a monster you've seen before, yeah. or by the way, since. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's totally new. And going to the psychological angle, when yeah. I rewatched it for the 50th time or whatever it was, yeah. when I was just. I did review this with Dorian mm -hmm. uh, for an episode last year. Yeah. Um, there's a scene with Wilfred Brimley, 
who's the guy who first sort of realizes not just that this is a monster, but the full scale of the And stakes. at this moment, he realizes that more than, possibly more than one person of that group is actually have been infected by the thing. It's as likely as not, it, it's almost for sure that at least one of the crew is this thing. Oh, I know who exactly and, who's infected as well. That's yeah, the thing. And, but, but I'm talking from the Wilfred Brimley's yeah, perspective. Yeah. He knows for a fact at least one of the crew is infected, probably more. Yeah. And further to that, if the crew, any one of the infected people get to a populated area, it's the world over. is at stake yeah. very rapidly. Yeah. So uh, he realizes that and he has this fucking flip out. He destroys the communication equipment. Mm -hmm. He can't quite bring himself to kill the men and himself, which is mm -hmm. probably like the only solution that's screaming in his tired brain. Yeah. But they lock him up. They isolate him. Yeah. And which dooms the, him. Which dooms him completely. That's what I was just going to talk about. There's yeah. the thing this time that I really thought about is, I, in my head, we don't know when or who. He does get changed into the thing. But he has a conversation through the door with Kurt Russell mm -hmm. where he says, I don't want to be alone out here anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm feeling much better now. Mm -hmm. Please let me out of this room. Mm -hmm. And you get the feeling like Russell Crowe kind of believes... Or Russell Crowe. Kurt Russell actually mm -hmm. believes him. Yeah. But... He can't open that door. Because he may or may not be because one of the Because the more you want to believe him, the less you can trust it, right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that, to my mind, in my head, he hadn't changed yet, was a death sentence. Yeah. When he didn't let him out of that room, when he left him alone, mm -hmm. that was a death sentence. And in a way, both Every men... Every character's hands get bloody in yeah, this movie. Both men somewhere. on both sides of the door, on some level, kind of know it, Yeah. too. Yeah. That's just a small little scene. It's not like a particularly memorable necessarily compared to the rest of the movie. But that scene by itself is just goddamn brilliant. It, and the movie is full of scenes like there it. There are so many little things about this movie, just the character beats that say everything about their character. Even when we first meet McCready, where he's drinking playing computerized chess. Mm -hmm. And he's just drink and just drinking. We know so much about that character and how defeated that character is. Like all these men out here have been brought out here because they, could, together, they couldn't really function sense. in modern society and you almost feel like some of us are people that are taking like, like a reboot for their lives with this movie but they're all damaged and broken in their own ways a lot of things have led them to this place they've isolated themselves but yeah. they haven't given up it's not yeah. like they want to die they just sort of are they, they would have a hard time functioning in modern society yeah um, the computer chess game, by the way, is one of the very few things about this movie that dates it. Mm -hmm. Because it's set in the South Pole and everybody's got the big parkas and the big beards on, yeah. it doesn't feel particularly 80s. And yeah. the special effects are as glorious to behold today yeah. as they were when they came out. Yeah. So who do you think was the first infected of the group? Um, I can't remember the name. The, the bald guy with the beard uh, who gets shot... When the uh, when the Norwegians first attack the the camp, really, he's laying in the bunk wounded and he gets his legs stitched up. <clears throat> oh, it's not him. I think it's Palmer. Palmer. Yep. I think the I think the, the pothead is the first one to go. I think he's the person that we see the shadow sort of turn around. The dog walks up, walks up to them, walks in. Mm -hmm. I think it's Palmer. Well, I mean, again, you can go through this movie screen frame by frame. Palmer's the one I think that. I mean, Windows drops the key. I think Windows. I think Palmer picks it up, goes to the blood bank, lets it out, and then puts it back in what's his name's pocket. Yeah. yeah. Well, again, uh, 
you don't know who is what. That's part of the great yeah. thrills of the of the movie, yeah. and part of the the unbelievable tease of the end of the movie. Because yeah. not only do we have you know all of our team whittled down to an unsurvivable. Oh, we're position. going there already. Okay. No, I'm just talking yeah. about like generally, like yeah. Not only we kind of expect in a monster movie we're going to get whittled down to a handful oh, of yeah. survivors, oh, yeah, yeah. right? Like we're we're anticipating that. Yeah. But the fact that our heroes question mark yeah. death question mark yeah is or is not the end of this right mm -hmm. uh, some scientific team is going to come to see what the fuck happened and they're going to thaw out the bodies and one of the bodies is not a human being and yeah. this all starts again yeah uh much like the end of halloween i think that his willingness to go dark with the ending gives the movie more punch makes it more memorable and the, he says it's the first one of his uh, apocalyptic series yeah. right, which is Prince of Darkness and In the Mouth of Madness Prince of Darkness again has a very hard to read ending right so yeah I, I, I appreciate that approach a lot yeah one of the things that makes this such a masterful movie when we think of like best at least tense action thriller sequences ever put in film and you know you could think of maybe the chase sequence and you know the french connection or you know the last 10 minutes of the godfather or you know sequences in jaws whatever just well-made terrifying crazy sequences one of them so much is that heart attack defibrillator sequence who's the actor that has the heart attack I don't know the name of the actor. <laughs> but the cat's the character's name. Uh, Charles Hallahan, who's playing Norris. Ah, right. Yes, well, that whole sequence essentially starts long before even the, you know, the heart attack is even sort of hinted at. But uh, that sequence where all of a sudden... It, what, what, sorry, well, Hallahan? Uh, the actor is Charles Hallahan. Hallahan. The character is Vance Norris. Vance Norris, where Norris has his heart attack. At that point, we're taken so out of what's been going on, and a lot of chaos has happened already. Like at this point, they're well aware that there's an alien in their midst and what it can do. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, very quickly, we forget about it because here's this character having a heart attack. Yeah. And we have, which builds up to the fibrillator sequence. And we completely forget that there's a jump scare coming because we're so engrossed with what's that, happening. that heart attack yeah. that we, we, we don't count the one, two, three, four five we completely forget and then we quickly re realize that oh that's a problem it's interesting too because we're not sure it replicates somebody perfectly so was that character norris going to have a heart attack anyway or did the transfer not happen 100 percent? why would it chose choose this time to reveal itself i think I it think shows it you i think it shows you how intelligent this thing really is because it's stalking the people but why choose why... that moment to reveal itself like why have a heart attack? Why, like the is maybe taking out the medical officer? You know you're gonna lose the doctor, right? That's mm -hmm. gonna happen. That adds to piles on the stakes. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. Like we don't know. Much like we don't know who is the thing when. Uh, mm -hmm. We don't know exactly why it's motivated. Like uh, the way I always read it is that it did copy him perfectly, and mm -hmm. he had a heart condition. Mm -hmm. And so he when he collapsed, it decided, well, I better change into something else. Mm -hmm. And it changed into something else when they're trying to defib him. Mm. And unfortunately, the doctor was in the ground floor. Mm -hmm. All of this is on the top of a scene that already had high stakes in it, right? Yeah, exactly. It just, it, I, I, don't, I think audiences, the first time watching this, like, I'm, I'm, I didn't see it coming. Yeah. It was, it, it, it honestly had surprised me. Um, I wasn't ready for it. And all of a sudden, 
he pushes the chest in and the teeth show up and you're just oh my god and then even more insanity incurs it's one of the craziest monster spaghetti scenes you've ever seen yeah and it's in the middle of a completely cogent composed psychologically rich horror movie yeah and yet this bee monster mayhem just is fucking unleashed yeah and and you are not ready for it well for me the scene like that's obviously the memorable one yeah uh I saw this movie when I was so young, I didn't know what it was called. Yeah. I just had this memory of this fucking dog being put in a cage with yeah. a bunch of other dogs. Yeah. And then wolfing out or yeah. tentacles spitting out of it. Yeah. And this big soup of dogs being fucking flamethrowered is yeah. being so traumatizing yeah. to a little fan of the littlest hobo, you yeah. know? Uh, until when I finally found the movie again, I think when I was 13 or 14, I was like, Oh my God! It was the thing. Yeah, that was the movie that's so so traumatized me. Yeah, there, there there's there's some ugly things that happen in this movie. Oh my if, God! If you if you can't handle animals being you know <laughs> mutilated, you will have a problem with this movie. I'm a dog lover. Yeah, and it stings. It, yeah. If you have a problem with people bodies being twisted in deep, dark, mysterious ways, you will have a problem with this movie. This movie is aesthetically both gorgeous and ugly at the same time because. We're in a, these people are in a horrific place. There's nowhere to yeah. go. And they're all very human as well. Like, you do almost like all of them and understand them to a point. Even Childs, who's completely and utterly selfish, we understand why he does the things that he does. And he's right in a lot of ways. He's a survivor, and if you know yeah. you can't trust everybody, you yeah. have to operate like you yeah. know you can't trust everybody. Yeah. It's, it's a hard line to take, but it's not stupid. No. No, and once again, there's so many like little scenes that really just get, each character gets their little moment in this movie. It takes the time to do that amidst the chaos and insanity of this movie. One question that a lot of people ask, and the director refuses to answer, is at the end of the film, after the camp has been burnt down or is bur- currently burning down, and everyone is essentially going to freeze to death, is whether or not either McCready or Childs, one if not both, are the thing has remained with this film since it's been released. It's one of those questions that people debate about, they nerd out, they geek out, they obsess over. I think I figured out who is the thing and who is not the thing by the end. What are your theories, though? Well, first of all, I don't think you figured it out because I happen to know that John Carpenter has told people different endings depending on when he's been asked. Mm -hmm. I think that much like a lot of his movies, it's dark and ambiguous. Mm Mm-hmm. I was always of the opinion that Childs must be a thing because mm-hmm. there's just no real good explanation for his disappearance other than he was hiding behind a barrel while the climax of the movie took place mm-hmm. and didn't want to contribute anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, either if you're abandoning them, which again is not a stupid move, abandon them. Mm-hmm. But uh, why? Like his appearance. Why come back then? His appearance alone is highly suspicious. Yeah. And I think we're supposed to believe that he's a thing. Although Dorian, when she and I reviewed it, talked about the video game. Mm-hmm. And in the video game, Childs dies and the Kurt Russell character uh, survives. Yeah, I know. Carpenter uh, has said uh, at least. The game uh, is canon. The game is canon. Here's the thing, though. I, I think that was a distraction. What is one thing that we figure out early on that it's established in this universe? One of the rules of the creature um, early on, do you remember? You've been taken over by the thing. It's a clue that it's given more than once in the film. What are one of the clues that... The clothes get torn up? Exactly. Uh, you know, when the, the thing, you know, cop 
grabs hold of you and, and starts and digesting you and duplicating you. Your clothes are at least torn and ripped and whatnot. Yeah. If you look at the jacket worn by Childs throughout the majority of the movie, it's this jet black dark parka that he wears throughout the movie. And what with the with the last time we see him as a human, uh, and he's already shown that he's very selfish and he can't really trust anyone. And um, will go out of his way for him and for me and me only. But he's wait looking outside the window. This is near near the end of this movie, uh, and we've seen this shot before. But he's in the coat rack room, looking outside, waiting to see. I think um, the Wilfred Brimley character might be coming back. What's his name? He's looking for Doctor. He's looking for Blair. They're all looking for Blair because at that point they think it's this thing. And he's wearing this jacket in the coat rack, and it does the shot of him, and it pulls back. It then shows the shot. Uh, the stairs a little bit, and it and it pans away. When we see Childs again, and also there's a sequence of how the jackets are put in that room. We then see very quickly, about not even a minute later, they do that same sequences of shot, and it's just establishing move before we have the final battle with Kurt Russell and the thing. But it shows the, the coat room, the coat room again, and the door is open where. Allegedly, Childs has you know gone out, but the jackets are all different again. Like the sequence of jackets are different, and you see yeah. the black jacket. I think I've seen the same YouTube video you're talking about where they're sort of going through. Anyways, this, frame by frame. I mean, I, I'm I, he, I'm not convinced wear, he's wearing a different jacket. Yeah. I'm not convinced that Carpenter made a choice. I think much like he's done in the past, he made then a why do that shot? Why do that shot? And it shows you how Blair got to Childs. Was going down. That's the, the last door. time we see Childs. Uh, so it's yeah. it's just suspicious. We're supposed yeah. to think Childs is the thing. He's a like we're supposed to want that, but we're not supposed to know it. it I, I disagree. But uh, I mean, and then I, why have that second shot a minute later? Like it, it's setting of up the empty room. Yeah. Well, yeah, of the empty room showing Childs. I would have to watch it again, but I and think why have one of the clues having jackets? I mean, the thing that that makes for it complicated a, for a shot that lasts three seconds. If that's his big fucking clue, then yeah. I would say uh, that's one of the weakest tactics that he takes in a movie yeah. where he's made zero mistakes, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. So I think he wanted it to be an ambiguous ending, and I'm okay with it. Oh, it, it, I mean, it is ambiguous, but and then it led to that one of those eternal questions about whether or not who's the thing or not. Um, he's wearing a different jacket. I don't buy the whole argument because in the same response, he talks about the breathing, how Russell, how we can see his breath, and how Chad this is not... This is fan nerds freaking out over, like, That I don't the, buy, the and something else that... Trek, right? And this, this is, is something is else that, that, that <laughs> is critical of that theory because it's established in the prequels, and I don't think this is canon, is that the thing can't digest metal. and process metal, and Child has an ear, and yeah. you see it clearly. But again, that hadn't been made yet. That rule so may or may yeah. not have been invaded. I again. think Childs is the thing. He also does that laugh, and I do think that's what's in that bottle mm-hmm. is not alcohol, and that's how he knows that he's fucked, and he does that little, eh. Yeah. I think what we're doing basically now is the equivalent of two Star Trek fans talking in Klingon. Like, sure. It's so, like... We want, we want, you know, to understand every corner of this movie that yeah. we're designed not to understand. <laughs> and uh, that's fine. I and mean, we can have a lot of fun doing that. But yeah. that's not reviewing the movie. That's just showing evidence as to how fascinating and rewatchable the thing really is. But there's so many good things about it, Larry. <laughs> I know. I'm not saying anything yeah. bad about it. I'm saying, like... We could go on endlessly about when and if Childs was changed, and we could go on endlessly of who was the thing when and in what order it all happened, but neither of us know, and we're not meant to. Mm. 
I'm sorry. I don't mean to be crushing you. I'm just saying that's where I land on it. All right, fine. Be that way. We both love the thing. Let's See fight about care. how much we love the thing. You've hurt me too much. I'm sorry. No. I think, like, for me, Childs is the creature, and he doesn't need to kill the Kurt Russell character because mm. they're both dead. As mm. Kurt Russell very just rightly says, yeah. we don't survive this. Yeah. Like, we can't, we can't survive around a fire for several months yeah. with no supplies out here. We either freeze to death or we starve to death, but we're fucked. Yep. And so the creature doesn't need to kill him. What would be the point? Right? Like, uh, but he's going to digest frozen. him. He's going to be frozen in the, well, like he was able to survive frozen in the ice for thousands of years, right? Yeah. He's just going to freeze again and someone's going to come to recover the team. Yep. And this all starts again with the thing too, which happily they never did make. And maybe shouldn't because like... This is such a fucking classic movie. Yeah. And speaking of it, it's a remake that totally justifies the existence of remakes. Yes, it's it's uh, basically an adaptation of a short story called Who's Go Who Go Who, Who Goes, Goes there? there, which is also on that website that I can't re- remember right now. Mm, anyways, camp, yeah. Anyways, no. How do we love thee? Let us count, count the, the ways. ways. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't know what what more we can say. Wilford Brimley's so good in this movie. Everyone is so good. We, we haven't Not talked enough. Of, we haven't talked enough about the cast. No. From David Clennon to Kurt Russell to Wilford Brimley, Brim, Brimley. Yeah. Um, um, everyone and, and like all the men get their little moments, which. Makes Richard it, Mazur plays Clark. Yeah. The guy who Kurt Russell blows the brains out of, who's completely yeah. innocent. Yeah. But because he's always so quiet and yeah. never says anything, we're always suspicious of him. Yeah. Again, this is the like one of the smallest roles in the movie, and it's so completely fleshed out by the actor. Yeah. It's a B movie with an A cast and like with a director who's just firing on Everything. every fucking cylinder. I know. I know. The thing. I can't imagine how dejected he felt when he saw like the opening weekend grosses and they soon realized that you know that this film was just not going to be the hit because it's so good this is why I think it will be a same weekend as Blade Runner being released I can't can't believe that like yeah like two films that home video saved and have now made an ultimate it's considered a classic of its a lot of great classic movies bombed right like uh, It's a Wonderful Life and The Wizard of Oz did not have initial financial returns theatrically, yeah. but yeah. became classics. Yeah. When we started this, they've got they, a lot of people blame ET for. But nobody wanted a scary alien. Everybody was yeah. in love for ET. Yeah, I think that history will show a greater love for the thing than yeah. for ET. Yeah, because it's just a better fucking movie. Yeah. So instead of doing our typical ranks for this uh, epic conversation of 80s-ness, what we're going to do is sort of truncate. We, we, over the past you know several hours, discussed all, all of the top 25 80s movies in, in some detail. So what now we'll do very quickly, just in summation. It's a recap. I'll get uh, Lee to recap his list for us, and then I will recap my list for us, and then we'll let everybody get on with the rest of their lives. Oh, but uh, right. long live '80s horror! Yeah, I do think it was a great it was, decade. It was a great for decade cinema. for horror. It was an awesome decade for horror. Yeah, uh, you know, it rivals the '70s, and you know, and how cool their horror movies were. Yeah, for sure. And so far, I mean, I'd like to be proven wrong. Hopefully, you know, we'll live to see a one that's as good or better. But so far, best decade for horror in my life. So. All right. 
Anyways. What was your top 25 80s movies? Uh, number, 20, Again. number 25, Ken Russell's mad, insane horror movie, sci-fi horror movie, Altered States. Number 24, Child's Play. Number 23, Day of the Dead. Number 22, Friday the 13th. Number 21, The Wonderfully Weird Videodrome. Number 20, sorry, Night of the Creeps is, was, was uh, number 20. Night of the Creeps, Fred Drecker's hilarious tribute to late night horror movies, drive-in movies. Uh, number 19, Fright Night. Number 18, Creep Show. Number 17, Prince of Darkness. Number 16, Pet Cemetery. Number 15 was Gremlins. Number 14, The Wonderful Carnivorous Cannibal Holocaust. Number 13, uh, The Wonderfully Goofy Reanimator. Number 12, Toby Hooper's Finest Hour, Poltergeist. Mm-hmm. Number 11 was Wes Craven's The Wes Craven Classic A Nightmare on Elm Street. Number 10, That Always Lovable. Because it's the blood. <laughs> Number 9, Run, Go, Get to the Chopper, Chopper, Predator. <laughs> uh, the Number 8, The Wonderfully Disturbing Date Movie, The Entity. Um, at number 9, Help Me with the Fly. Uh, number six, we have the wonderful Living Dead, Return of the Living Dead. Uh, oh, the Surfing Dead. Sorry. Number five, the wonderful, the Pulitzer Prize-winning classic Evil Dead Two. Number four, the best movie that ever starts with the letter A, Aliens. Mm-hmm. Number three, we have The Shining Quiet. Oh, wait a second, that's The Shining, Stanley Kubrick's master horror opus. Number two, the best werewolf movie ever made, best there ever was, best there ever will be. That's right, I'm looking at you, A-W-N-L, the American Werewolf in London. And at number one, I've said it once, I'll say it again, best horror movie of all time. I don't care what anyone else says, they're just wrong. I have the wonderfully John Carpenter's remake interpretation of The Thing. Nice. It's all good. Uh, I'll do mine here really quickly for you. Uh, I had a real hard time making this list, and like I said, I was picking movies to represent a whole corner of cinema so that I could cross those and movies off the list. Yeah. So it was a tough list. In 25th position, the much-discussed Lost Boys. Yeah. A fun, quintessentially 80s vampire movie. Number 24, The Road Warrior. Number 23, I put... Uh, Henry, Portrait of a Serial Killer. Good choice. I, I, you know, I didn't even think about that. And I, the thing is, I, I, I looked at that title. 22, The Vanishing. Yep. 21, Pumpkinhead. Yep. 20, Prince of Darkness. Yep. 19, Communion. Yep. Uh, again, not so much a horror movie, but a movie that really scared me, especially when I saw it as a kid. 18, Clive Barker's Hellraiser. 19, Evil Dead. Or, sorry, 17, Evil Dead. 16, Evil Dead 2, Dead by Dawn. 15, Night of the Creeps. 14, The Burning. 13, My Bloody Valentine. But by rights, those probably should be further down the list. They were representing for the slasher cinema of the 80s. Yeah. 12, Creep Show. 11, Poltergeist. 10, Return of the Living Dead. 9, The Entity. 8, A Nightmare on Elm Street. 7, The Blob. 6, The Fly. 5, Predator. 4, Aliens. Three in American World from London to The Shining, and we agree with number one, John Carpenter's The Thing. You. 
The 80s were totally radical, dude. Dude. <laughs> I feel like we're having a Max Headroom moment. Good? Oh, Max Headroom. I wish it was like the 1987 and Saturday morning and I just woke up and I was eating bowl after bowl of Frosted Flakes waiting for my favorite cartoons to start. Yep. <laughs> but alas, here I am knocking on 40 and wrapping up another quality episode of Rank and Review with my dear friend, Mr. Lee Beckman. You're welcome. Uh, can I give you the final word on horror in the 80s? Uh, well, it was definitely monster-driven. That's the one thing I will say about the 80s. It was glorious. It was a glorious decade. It was a glorious decade for genre movies in general, not just horror movies. There was, you know, you could open up this list to make, you know, sci-fi movies, but there was a lot of classic movies that were made in the 80s that... I don't think the 90s have as, as much. It's a weird contradiction to say because they have this goofy fun to them, a lot of them. Mm-hmm. But they also have a realness to them. Maybe mm-hmm. it's the prosthetic effects. Maybe it's just, you know, the fact that I'm looking into my past when I watch this. Yeah, but the 90s were still prosthetics. It, it, yeah. it was, the CGI was starting to rear its head. But There's something special about that time because, you know, it was my childhood. But I really do think it was a great time for genre cinema. Yep. We made it to the end of that two-part epic 80s odyssey, and I loved it, and I sure hope you guys did too. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Rankin Review. I hope you tune in two weeks from today, or I guess depending on when you listen to this, we do drop every second Wednesday, and shall continue as long as I believe people are listening. Let me know that you are listening by writing me at rankinreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. Tell a friend about the show, and thank you so much for your support. I will talk to you soon.